Hi everyone, welcome back to Arc Thoughts, your favorite podcast of the week. Thank you all for tuning in. We really appreciate all of your support throughout this project. Now this week I'm in India, and so we thought an interesting episode would be reflecting on my trip here and providing some information about Indian culture that our viewers probably are not familiar with. So to provide a little bit more context about my trip, I'm currently located within the state of Rajasthan. This is at the northwestern portion of India and is one of the few states that borders Pakistan. If you have ever seen pictures of camels and desert safaris within India, there is an excellent chance that you are seeing pictures from this state. Rajasthan is particularly notable for the architectural style of the large medieval forts built in the 15th century within India. So now my ancestors have lived in a city near Jaipur, which is Rajasthan's capital. They've lived in Kota, basically from the start. My parents were the first generation to leave when they moved to the United States about 20 years ago. Now with my reflections on this trip, I'd like to start by speaking about some key differences between the United States and India that would become apparent on one's first visit to this country. So my connection uh, in terms of my flight was in New Delhi. So this is the capital of India, and one of the few first things I recognized as I stepped out of the airport was the vast difference in climate and weather. When I left DA, it was snowing in Colorado. When I walked out into Delhi, I could feel the humidity and the heat present within India. Now keep in mind, this was actually at 2 in the morning. There had been rainfall the day before, and this is basically what we would call the end of winter. So that should put into context how warm it truly is within India, especially during the summer. So the high temperature in my home city of Kota last year was the equivalent of 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty warm here. Another thing that you notice is that the environment is vastly different. One key feature that jumps out at tourists and often excites a lot of children is that there are animals roaming the streets. Stray cows are the most popular, but you can also see monkeys, buffaloes, dogs, tons of squirrels and many other animals just roaming the streets. So at first it seems kind of cool, but there are also a decent number of downsides of this. For instance, tons of cows roam on the highway between the two cities in Rajasthan. So like imagine cows just wandering I-25 on a daily basis. Then the problem is like after 7 p.m. it becomes a little difficult to see the cows, especially the ones who are black. And so people are quite afraid of hitting them. And thus the highway kind of gets shut down after 7 p.m. So in the evening and night people don't plan to travel uh using those roads which is sort of incredible if you think about it cows on the highway make people change their travel plans like just imagine that in the united states ever happening and also with the monkeys is that sometimes they just steal your food if you're not careful one time many years ago when i was over here i think we forgot to um close the door while we were just sitting in in a different room within the house so a monkey jumped in walked op- walked in through the open door came over to our kitchen saw the fridge just opened the door and started eating food and then left um another time like if you're just wandering the streets you have to be a little careful about the food you carry in your hand i was i think 7 years old 
when I was just wandering the streets, I had either a water bottle or it was a banana in my hand. And then you just had a monkey that jumped right in front of me and just snatched it straight out of my hand and then ran away. So you do have to be a little careful about these things. It's sort of like a giant zoo, but but there are some clear downsides as well. Another prominent and more melancholy feature that stands out is the vast poverty present within India. So in the United States, there's certainly poverty and many people face homelessness. But it's not anywhere near as widespread as in India. To put in perspective, in the United States, the poverty line is defined. For one person living under the age of 65 at $12,000 a year. The average annual income in India is $1,700. Now, to be fair, the standard of living is much lower in India, but it still paints a compelling picture of India's poverty. So one in five Indians are currently considered below the Indian poverty line, which is substantially lower than any Western definition. So this fact manifests itself in daily life with many beggars on the streets and millions of people facing homelessness. Amongst these people are many little children. In fact, poverty is so widespread in India that even what we consider as relatively menial jobs have large amounts of competition. There are simply so many people looking to obtain a position that it's extremely difficult to even get what we consider a job that requires low qualifications. So for instance, I was reading an article about a couple openings for a waiter position in a governmental restaurant. So there were 13 available positions. Now, for that position, there were 7,000 applicants. Out of those applicants, there were many college graduates, many people with bachelor's and master's degrees. Now, out of those 13 possible positions, 12 of them were filled by people with college degrees. In the article, it mentioned one individual who had a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and aimed to get a job that would fulfill his educational qualities for four years to no avail. After being unable to find employment, he settled for what we would call a class government job or the waiter position that he had just taken on. Now the cost of labor being much lower than the US does offer some very significant benefits to India. Many families are able to hire a cook, maid, chauffeur, and several other servants. For relatively wealthy families, this offers great convenience. For this reason, I've had many relatives suggest that they don't like the American or Western lifestyle where the cost of living is so high and the cost of labor is so high that one must do all of these tasks themselves. We have to wash our own dishes. We have to cook our own food. We have to drive ourselves to different locations. While we have to pack our own clothes, we have to do all of these things that in India are just done automatically for you by servants. Now, for a lot of my relatives, this is a significant factor, and one of the reasons why they would never leave to live within the United States or Western countries within Europe. So now I'd like to shift a little bit towards talking about the people and the culture, which is also vastly different than the United States. Religion is an integral part of the lives of people here. 
It is ever-present within the government, rituals, marriages, and the day-to-day routines of individuals. The Indian subcontinent has presented four of the world's major religions. Namely, these are Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. Most people are typically aware that India holds the world's largest population of Hindus, or individuals who practice the Hindu faith. But a fact that most people do not know is that India also holds the second largest population of Muslims, or those who practice the faith of Islam, in the world. They're behind only Indonesia in this regard. Now, technically, India has a constitution similar to the United States, in the sense that its constitution allows for the freedom of religion. In 1976, the constitution was even amended to make the country a secular state. Still, great elements of religion are present within Indian laws. For instance, it's illegal to slaughter the cow, which is considered a holy animal within Indian culture. 21 out of India's 29 states even have strict prison sentences for this crime. Also, even though India is technically a secular state, there are high levels of government restrictions on religion. In several states, there are legal restrictions that have been used to intimidate religious minorities, specifically Christians and Muslims. Also, Buddhists, Hindus, and Sikhs are considered part of Hinduism, so they don't receive access to social services or employment and educational preferences that are sometimes reserved for religious minorities. So, okay, on a slight tangent, I find some of the religious or some of the educational preferences given to the lower castes and religious minorities within India an interesting point to discuss. And there's a clear connection between those policies and what we practice in the United States. So in the U.S., there is this policy called affirmative action, which is used widely in college admissions. Put simply, this policy mandates that the use of race in college admissions is constitutional, and proponents of this policy have long argued that this helps underprivileged minorities raise their status within society. Now, India has a policy that's sort of similar. Here, they call it the reservation system. Now, the primary difference between the two policies is that the American Affirmative Action Policy dictates that the explicit use of quotas within college admissions is strictly illegal. So, for instance, if you have 100 seats and you say, okay, I'm going to put 10 to African Americans, 10 to Hispanics, and 80 Caucasians, and you have that laid out previously explicitly, then that is considered illegal. Now, the use of implicit um, now, the use, now, using race implicitly within college admissions is what has been declared as entirely constitutional. Now, within India, it's the opposite. So, the reservation system actually advocates for a strict quota system. So, I believe it was last year that the reservation system put aside 49.5% of its seats in college admissions to lower-ranked castes and classes. So, for instance, if you have 100 seats... 49.5 of those seats would be reserved to a certain group of people, with the 50.5 left to the general population. Now, for anybody familiar with either the policy of affirmative action or the reservation system, this number will stand out as quite high. Reserving almost half of one's seats in college admissions is a lot. Now, the primary reason that this is done in India is politics. Politicians seek to seek out the votes of lower castes. 
So they've consistently raised the percentage throughout the years as a political issue, aiming to gain the support of the masses. So when the uh, reservation system was first introduced, there was, I I think it was like 5-10% of seats are reserved um, to those groups. But throughout the years, every year, during election cycles, every five years, um, they've consistently raised the percentage to where it's almost 50% now. So I've mentioned the caste system a decent bit, so I'll speak a little bit about that as well. So there are technically thousands of subcastes within India, which form a social hierarchy of sorts. However, for our purposes, let's keep it simplistic. There are five primary castes. The lowest are the Dalits. So these are the castes for whom the reservations are primarily designed. These are the sweepers, the latrine cleaners, the um, uh, the sweepers, the, um, the people that take on the most menial jobs within society. Above them are what we call the shudras, so the manual laborers, the construction workers, the servants at homes. Above them you have the vaishavas, the farmers and the merchant class. Then you have the kshatriyas, the class above them, which is the warrior, kings and princes class. The kshatriyas and the vaishavas are the two richest classes. And finally, at the highest point, you have the Brahmins. So religion taking on such an important role within Indian culture. You have the Brahmins being the religious priests. Um, So now in the past few centuries, the caste system has been used by individuals to assert dominance over others and create great discrimination within Indian society. The caste system is still widely present in India, especially in villages, where it is prominently used, even in judicial matters. But overall, its impacts have greatly diminished, especially in more developed cities and amongst the more educated populace. I'd also like to speak about some religious issues that have been raised in India, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. So India has consistently scored highly in what we call the Social Hostilities Index. That's not a good thing. A lot of discrimination has been targeted at the Dalit classes in the past two decades. Religious minorities, including Buddhists, Christians, Jains, Muslims, and Sikhs, have also been harassed. In recent years, there has been a surge in mob attacks by Hindu vigilante groups against Dalit and Muslim consumers and traders in the beef industry. So a little bit about the conflicts between Hindus and Muslims. This has been a contentious issue throughout Indian history. My understanding of it is that the Mughal rulers invaded India a couple of centuries ago, and that was when Hindus and Muslims started having the wars within India. Afterwards, the two religions coexisted in India despite some animosity and struggles between one another. This continued until the British invaded India in the 1800s. Part of the British strategy was to divide and conquer, so using religious as a force, they divided Hindus and Muslims even further using religious ideological barriers as they aimed to take control of the country. So India became independent in 1947. The British offered a final parting curse. Alongside the Muslim League in India, they split the country to create Pakistan, leaving the remainder as India. The idea was that Pakistan would harbor Muslims and India would harbor Hindus. Now this presented a clear problem as the British left. There were Muslims in what was now the Indian portion of India. And there were Hindus in what was now uh, Pakistan. Now, what were these people to do? 
that they have to leave their homes and lives behind to go to a different country. So the story as I've heard it is that Pakistan sent over all of the Hindus to India. They didn't let them stay within their homes. Now India offered um, for the Muslims remaining to either leave or to stay within the country. Now this has created a lot of conflict between the two religious groups. And especially so during that time of partition. It was a very controversial decision when announced. Now this has also led to the great feelings of animosity that India and Pakistan bear towards one another. And has largely contributed to the instability of the world. As these two countries, both nuclear powers, have often gone to war with one another. And there's always this lingering fear that they might go to war again. Which would be catastrophic. So, I've actually heard of many stories of the great struggles between these two religious groups. Even as recent as 30 to 40 years ago, my parents have told me stories about riots when they were kids. People would storm out of their homes full blazing with pitchforks and fires and swords and aim to attack members of the opposite group. Hindu-occupied areas led to the slaughter of Muslims. Muslim-occupied areas led to the slaughter of Hindus. Now, my grandparents lived in what was a Muslim, uh, lived near what was a Muslim-occupied area. They were Hindus, so before the riots be- uh, grew to the point where they couldn't be controlled, my grandparents locked up all their stuff and fled to another area for a couple of weeks. Now this has been a occurrence that has taken place all across India for many decades, and millions of people have been, who have, have suffered and have been affected due to this conflict between the two religions. Okay, well, that's quite a bit of information regarding the culture and religions in India. I went off on a couple tangents, but I hope you found that interesting and informative. So now I'm going to shift to talking about the family life within India. The nuclear family is ever-present in Indian culture. It is culturally expected for parents to live with their sons and daughter-in-laws throughout their lives. This often leads to large family atmospheres. I visited my grandfather's brother's home during my trip. And that was in some way the embodiment of this cultural phenomenon. There were the two parents, they had two sons who both lived there, two daughter-in-laws, and then they had kids as well. It was this giant family living together. Now the rationale behind this is that as the kids grow up, their parents obviously support them and raise them. And then once their parents grow old, then those children will help support their parents throughout, um, throughout the last few years of their lives. So now, for a lot of our viewers, this will raise an obvious question. What happens to the daughters within Indian culture? So Indian culture typically dictated that daughters would be married and live with their husbands' families. Now, this cultural phenomenon is not as present now as it once was, as female education is on the rise and women are becoming more independent within Indian society. So they're taking on positions of power and aiming to build their own careers and, and become more independent. However, this is typically how it was culturally. Also, movies and cinema are a large part of Indian culture as well. Bollywood, as far as I know, is the biggest film industry in the world in terms of movies produced per year. Every movie has music within them, so it's kind of like every movie produced here is a musical. The music in those movies is the primary source of music that people listen to. So there aren't too many artists that produce music simply on their own. It's largely within the story of the movie. 
In terms of tourism, there are a number of amazing places to visit in India. I visited Taj Mahal about seven years ago. That was absolutely amazing. I've also seen a number of touristy locations within Delhi, which are great. So finally, I'll wrap up the podcast with a couple of personal experiences I've had on this trip and overall reflections on what this vacation has taught me. One key experience that stood out to me during this trip, and I think will stand out to some of our listeners, was when I was talking with my grandmother's mate. So it's astonishing how different our lives are back home from what she had to go through throughout her life. So at the age of six or seven, um, the maid was engaged. This is actually pretty common in India, especially among poor individuals, and in the past few years. And it's just been a part of Indian culture. So she got married then at around 11 or 12. She dropped out of school in fourth grade to help take care of the home. Then... She had her first kid at 16, so she never had the chance to go to school or build a life for herself. Later, her husband became an alcoholic and started abusing her, physically and emotionally. Now she's left him and is trying to raise her two kids. Now, hearing stories like hers really brings about great gratitude in me for the life I lead and the privileges that I've had throughout my life. And I think that's the main thing I'll take away from this trip. Life in the United States isn't anywhere near perfect. But despite all our problems... Trips to India always make me appreciate what we have there. Clean air, safe drinking water, clean environment where there isn't dirt and trash everywhere. Decent air quality, a solid educational system. It certainly has problems, but still, it's really, really good. Good human rights, decent standard of living for people, a sense of freedom. These are all things that are an ingrained part of our lives, so we take them for granted every single day. But coming to a country where these are not so readily available has shown me their value. With that said, one aspect of India that really sh- that really presented itself in a positive light was the value of family. I have one inc- uncle that lives in Texas, and that's about the extent of my family within the United States. Coming here, visiting all my grandparents, my other uncles and aunts, and my cousins really makes me feel connected with my family. And that's a feeling I wish I could keep with me in America, and is one that I certainly miss throughout my life. Their absence often makes holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving feel boring, even lonely some years. But getting the chance to see them, especially my four-year-old cousin for the first time on this trip, has really helped me understand how important family is. Ultimately, that's one thing that India brings for me, a sense of community. With family living here and a lot of family friends, India brings a unique sense of connectedness. I think it's partly the culture, with families living together. But amongst the people here, there's certainly something special. Well, thank you all for tuning in so much. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week. <clears throat> We've received a lot of requests for more interviews, so we're hoping to schedule times with teachers to record and put out more of that content in the next couple weeks. We've also received a couple of requests about speaking with either admin or Stuco about upcoming school-wide events. So we're also hoping to reach out to them and schedule some time to speak with them and put out some of that content within the next couple of weeks. Please also let us know what you thought of this episode. This was a lot more scripted than normal, so please tell us if you like this format, or if you want us to switch to something else. Stay tuned, and thank you so much once again for listening. We really do appreciate it. Please let us know what you thought of this episode at awkthoughts.net. Thanks. Thank you.